0: Welcome to the Monterey Podcast. For more information, check out our website at MontereyChurch.com. And our thanks to those young men and women for uh, sharing with us today and especially for reading some of the verses of 1 Corinthians 13. Let me invite you to hear the opening lines from the Apostle Paul in two of his epistles from 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. Paul, Silas, and Timothy, to the church of the Thessalonians, and God the Father, and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace and peace to you. We always thank God for all of you and continually mention you in our prayers. We remember before our God and Father your work produced by faith, your labor prompted by love, and your endurance inspired by hope. In our Lord Jesus Christ, and I would especially note those last phrases, your work produced by faith, your labor prompted by love, and your endurance inspired by hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. From Colossians 1, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, to God's holy people in Colossae, the faithful brothers and sisters in Christ, grace and peace to you from God our Father. And then you heard some of the lines from 1 Corinthians 13, but let me read that entire chapter this morning as we launch this new series, a series that we are titling Love Song. Paul says, If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but do not have love, I'm only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have a faith that can move mountains but do not have love, I put the ways of childhood behind me. For now we see only a reflection as in a mirror, then we shall see face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I am fully known. And now these three remain, faith, hope, and love. But the greatest of these is love. I suspect that you are aware that the Apostle Paul probably, well, he did, he wrote more books in our New Testament than any other author likely wrote more material. Uh, he and the Apostle John in terms of overall words come pretty close to one another. The Apostle Paul uh, wrote at least 13 letters in our New Testament. Nine of those letters are written to churches or to groups of churches in that first century world. And so the church in Rome, two letters to the church in Corinth, churches in Ephesus, Philippi, Colossi. Two letters to the church in Thessalonica, and a letter to the churches in the region of Galatia. And very similar to the structure of letters in that first century world, Paul typically will begin those letters with a greeting. And so Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus to God's holy people in Colossae, grace and peace to you from God the Father. And then typically he follows that greeting With a prayer of thanksgiving. Uh, The prayer may be brief, a couple of verses, or as is the case in Ephesians 1, the prayer may be rather lengthy. But typically, Paul's letters after that greeting, Paul's letters will include a prayer of thanksgiving. Thanksgiving for his relationship with the church, thanksgiving for their devotion to Christ. And in one way or another, he often thanks God for the faith, hope, and love of those believers, of those churches, like the two texts I read at the outset, 1 Thessalonians 1 and Colossians 1. Thanksgiving for your work produced by faith, your labor prompted by love, and your endurance inspired by hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. Thanksgiving at the outset of these letters for the faith, hope, and love of these churches. But when Paul writes to the church in Corinth, and I trust you know something about that church, all of the challenges, all of the issues that Paul has to address as he writes to this church. When he writes to the church in Corinth, it's important to notice that he does begin with a prayer of thanksgiving. In fact, listen to some of the words. He says, I always thank my God for you because of his grace given you in Christ Jesus. For in him you've been enriched in every way with all kinds of speech. And with all knowledge, God thus, God thus confirming our testimony about Christ among you. Therefore, he says, you do not lack any spiritual gift as you eagerly wait for our Lord Jesus Christ to be revealed. Paul thanks God, in other words, for the gifts, the spiritual gifts that the church in Corinth possesses to the point of saying, you do not lack any spiritual gift. It's an incredibly gifted church. But did you notice that Paul does not thank God for the faith, hope, and love of this church? Likely because the church in Corinth was not doing well in those areas. For example, he spends an entire chapter talking about the importance of and the implications of faith in the resurrection. Not just in the resurrection of Jesus, although that's the core But faith in the resurrection, 1 Corinthians 15, the longest treatment of the resurrection in the entire New Testament. And I would submit it is there because their faith in the resurrection is not where it needs to be. And so notice again, Paul does not thank God for the faith, hope, and love of this church, likely because they were not doing well in those areas, especially in the area of love. And that is reflected throughout the letter. Their behavior is characterized by divisiveness, by pride, by arrogance. Their lack of love is seen in the way they respond to sin. For example, they're not holding each other accountable. And love always holds one another accountable. By the way they treat one another, when there is disagreement, you've got one brother taking another brother to court. By the way they behaved in the assembly, Rather than using their gifts to bless one another and to be a witness to an unbelieving world, they are filled with pride and arrogance. In fact, they are doing more harm than good. Even their behavior toward one another as they share the Lord's Supper is atrocious. They are excluding one another, not honoring what it means to be a part of the body of Christ, excluding one another rather than embracing and affirming and blessing one another as they remember the death of of Jesus. And when you come to that little segment, the words that our kiddos read just a few moments ago, love is patient and love is kind. I think when you read those words in the overall context of 1 Corinthians, Paul is saying, here's what love looks like, but you are showing anything but kindness or patience toward one another. Again, this church was incredibly gifted Let me pause there. This church was incredibly gifted. And we pointed to several texts in 1 Corinthians during the month of January in the series that we titled Gifted, as Paul uses the image of the church being a body, the body of Christ, where every part of the body is gifted, where every part of the body is important, crucial to the overall health and growth of the church. But hear me carefully. As important as it is to acknowledge the gifts in the body, it is just as important to acknowledge the way we use those gifts. Just as important to acknowledge the potential of pride and arrogance and divisiveness existing in the body, even because of the gifts we possess to the point that someone may conclude or may argue, I'm more important than you are because of the gifts I have and the gifts that you don't have. And so in the midst of his discussion regarding these spiritual gifts, chapters 12 through 14, Paul pauses to focus on the importance of love, what we know as 1 Corinthians 13. Bottom line, our gifts or actions do not matter if we do not have love. In contrast to gifts that will ultimately pass away, Paul says love is enduring. Love never fails. In fact, step back with me for a moment and think about the overall flow of 1 Corinthians 13. If I were to ask, where do you most often hear this chapter read, or at least portions of this chapter read, my guess is that many of you would say, well, during wedding ceremonies. I want you to hear me carefully. The qualities of love that Paul identifies in this chapter are certainly appropriate when we're talking with a couple about marriage, or for that matter, when we're talking about any relationship that we have with other people, friendships, family, etc., that love is patient, love is kind, that love endures during the tough times, that love keeps no record of wrongs. But might I suggest that marriage and a wedding ceremony were not even on Paul's radar when he wrote these words? Paul wrote these words to a church that was badly divided. Paul wrote these words to a church that was incredibly gifted, but to a church that was not guided by love in the use of those gifts. And so, bottom line, these words are not just mushy little, little words about love, these words are a call for repentance. The secret remedy for a divided church, the remedy for a church full of pride or arrogance is love. And we're talking about a tough love that digs deep to the core of who we are. These words are a measuring stick to correct us. I think it begs the question, how do we measure the health of a church? Or for that matter, how do we measure most things in life? How do we measure success? How do we measure effectiveness? How do we measure faithfulness? What scales do we use? Whether we're talking about our individual lives or the life of a body of believers, what kind of scales do we use? Now, I'm going to make a guess. My guess is that most every family represented in this room this morning has a set of scales in your home. It may not look like this set of scales, my guess is you've got some scales, and you use those scales to measure to gauge your weight. Uh, for example, I weigh about five pounds more than I did this time last week. Uh, that New year's resolution hasn't worked uh, very well, but we, we we measure, we gauge such things as our weight, our health, or for that matter, we use a whole variety of scales to measure. Our spiritual health, to measure our faithfulness. And so I might compare myself to you. I'm better looking than you are. I'm smarter than you are. Or in a church context, the gifts that I possess are more important than the gifts that you have. I'm a better speaker. I'm a better leader than you are. And if I'm not careful, I allow pride and arrogance to grab the best of me to the point that I begin to look down on you, to the point that I might even begin to exclude you. And Paul says, it doesn't matter what my gifts are. If I don't have love, if I don't demonstrate kindness and patience toward my brothers and sisters, if I don't have love, then I've really gained nothing. Uh, Tomorrow, is Valentine's Day. And so we buy gifts for people that we love. We wrap those gifts in beautiful Valentine type paper. We put bows on the top. Or if you'll think back with me for just a moment, and some of you are still in school, but if you'll think back with me for a moment, when I was in elementary school, one of the things that we did on Valentine's Day was to bring a box to, sho- uh, to school with us, typically a shoebox. Uh, Young ladies in the class would decorate those. I just took a plain old shoebox like most of the boys did. But you took those boxes in order to carry the Valentine cards that you were going to give to the others in your class, and you took that box in order to gather the Valentine cards that you received. And we measured how much we were loved or how popular we were on the basis of, well, how many cards did you get? How many cards did you get? I still remember one boy who was in most of the elementary classes I was a part of from about sixth grade or second grade on. One of those guys who was kind of an outcast, one of those guys who typically only got four or five cards from the rest of the kids in the class. I still wonder all of these years later, the kind of rejection he must have felt. How do you measure? How do you measure popularity? How do you measure? love. Or we measure our faithfulness on the basis of how loud we are. I I speak out more for Jesus than you do. I'm more vocal about my faith than you are. I'm more vocal about particular positions I take on any number of things than you are. And so obviously, I'm a better Christian than you are. And Paul says, you know, it really doesn't matter how loud you are, how vocal you are, if you don't have love, you really don't gain anything. Or we gauge our faithfulness, our health on the basis of, so how much money did I give? And so I've given hundreds and hundreds or perhaps even millions and millions of dollars to God. I've obviously given more to God than you have If it weren't for me and my family, this church wouldn't be where it is today because we're all, we're after all the ones who are willing to give so generously. And Paul says, you know, it really doesn't matter how much you give, even if you give everything you have, if you don't have love. And so what kind of scales Do we use? How do we measure our health, our success, our faithfulness, our effectiveness in our lives, but in particular as we look at this 1 Corinthians 13 text in the life of a body of believers? You know, we could probably identify dozens of measuring sticks that we use, but here are some of the underlying questions. Is it possible that we're using the wrong scales? Is it possible that we're more concerned about what others think of us rather than being concerned about what God thinks of of us? Is it possible that we're more concerned about our interest rather than the interest of others? By the way, it is fascinating that Jesus speaks to this. Some of the final words that he spoke before his betrayal and crucifixion speak very directly to this. In John chapter 13... As Jesus and the disciples shared the Passover meal, it's the same context where he introduces what we know as the Lord's Supper. It's just that the Gospel of John doesn't reference that. What the Gospel of John talks about is washing feet. The text says that Jesus loved the disciples to the very end. He wanted to show them the full extent of his love. And so during the meal, He took a basin of water, he took off his outer garments, and he began to wash the feet of those disciples. In a first century world where travel was often by foot, where you traveled wearing sandals, where your feet became dirty and stinking. And so if you entered a home or you entered a room where you were going to share a meal with others, it wasn't unusual for there to be a basin of water by the entrance. You would wash your feet Or if you're entering someone's home, perhaps a servant would wash your feet. Or if the owner of the home wanted to show you incredible honor, to show you the full extent of his love, he might wash your feet. Because you see, when you ate a meal with others, you didn't sit at a table where you put your feet underneath the table. The table was much closer to the floor and you reclined at that table, often with your feet being pretty close to the face of the person next to you, those dirty, stinking feet that have not been washed. Evidently, in the story that we're looking at in John 13, none of those guys have washed their feet, and obviously none of them have chosen to wash the feet of the others in the room. And so Jesus gets up, takes that basin of water, takes off his outer garments, and he begins to wash feet. He washes the feet of disciples who just prior to had argued about who's the greatest in the kingdom. He even washes the feet of the one who is about to betray him. And just a few moments later, Jesus says, And you command, I give you, love one another. As I've loved you, so you must love one another. By this, everyone will know that you're my disciples if you love one another. That's how folks will know that you are a follower of Jesus. By the way, you love one another. Now, some of you have heard me pose this question before, but hang on again. Jesus says, a new command I give you, love one another. And my question is, what's new about the command? Because if you had grown up in a Jewish context, you would have heard, you would have known uh, those Old Testament scriptures that commanded the Jews to love one another, to love their neighbors. So what's new about the command? Well, perhaps the next line gives us some clue. Jesus said, as I have loved you, so you must love one another. A sacrificial giving love, a love where you honor one another, where you place the interest of others above yourself, where you do not use your position in life to your advantage, a love where you're willing to step out of your comfort zones to serve others, even to the point of washing feet. How do you measure the health of a church, the health of a community of faith? By the gifts we possess, by the number of ministries that are in place. How do you measure faithfulness? What scales do we use? The amount of money we give, the number of Valentine cards that we give or receive, by how loud we are, by the number of times we show up at church in a given week or a given year. No, Jesus says the measuring rod in our lives is our love for one another. That's how the world will know that we are followers of Jesus. But as significant as that is, Jesus takes it even a step further. Four chapters later, John chapter 17, as he prays for love and unity among his followers, he says, my prayer is not for them alone. And he's talking about the disciples, the ones he's just been praying for. He says, I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message. That includes us. All of these centuries later, I pray for those who will believe in me through their message. That all of them may be one, Father, just as you are in me and I am in you. May they also be in us so that, hear him, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. I've given them the glory that you gave me, that they may be one as we are one. I in them and you in me so that they may be brought to complete unity. And then the world will know that you sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. I think it's very easy when we talk about subjects like love and unity to just casually move on past as if, well, those are easy or we don't place as much stock in love and unity as we do in other things that we believe in. And both Paul and Jesus remind us of how crucial love is. That it's not just this mushy feeling. It is this deep call to reach out and bless and embrace and bless others just as Jesus has loved us. When I concluded uh, the January series on Gifted a couple of weeks ago, I made the observation how the world sees us Often has a profound impact on how they see Jesus, how they see Christianity, how they see the church. And again, that's at the heart of Jesus' prayer that our love and unity may lead others to put their faith in Jesus, to recognize that Jesus is truly the Son of God. And so, over these three weeks that remain in February, counting today, I'm inviting us to do some reflection on 1 Corinthians chapter 13. Does our community, does the world draw the conclusion that we're followers of Jesus because of our love for one another? Does our community, does the world draw the conclusion that Jesus really is the Son of God because of our love, because of our unity? Or does the world look at us and decide they want nothing to do with Christ or the church? Bottom line, ministry through us should be marked by love. I love the way one of our creative team members defined love when we were reflecting on this text a few weeks ago. She said, love is the unconditional self-giving that attains the highest good of the other. And so bottom line again, ministry through us not only should be, but must be marked by love. I'm so grateful for the multitude of ministries that are in place at Monterey, but if those ministries are not marked by love, they're nothing. I'm so grateful for the diversity of gifts that exist in this church family, but if we exalt the gift rather than using the gift with a deep love for those that we serve, it gains us nothing. In fact, if I speak in the tongues of men or of angels but do not have love, I'm only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have a faith that can move mountains, but do not have love, I'm nothing. If I give all I possess to the poor and give over my body to hardship that I may boast, but do not have love, I gain nothing. It's those three that remain, faith, hope, and love, a deep faith in a God who is faithful to us, a deep faith in Jesus as the Son of God and in the good news that His death, burial, and resurrection brings, hope that sustains us during both the good moments and the challenging moments of life, hope that is rooted in the resurrection of Jesus that is reserved in heaven for us, and love, love for God with heart, soul, mind, and strength, love for one another, love for our community and our world. These three remain. The greatest of these is love. And so if the Apostle Paul was writing a letter to the Monterey Church, what might he say? I suspect he would begin with a word of greeting, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus to the brothers and sisters at Monterey. Grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And then a prayer of thanksgiving. Would he offer thanks for the diversity of gifts in this church? I I tend to think so. Would he offer thanksgiving for the multitude of ministries in this church? I, I tend to think so. But would the focus of his prayer be on our faith, hope, and love? And specifically, would he thank God for our love? I tend to think so but let's not leave it there. Let me leave with you today the same challenge that Paul extends to the church in Thessalonica. He begins that letter, as we mentioned earlier, with thanksgiving for their faith, hope, and love. But then a couple of chapters later, he extends this challenge. May the Lord make your love increase and overflow for each other and for everyone else, just as ours does for you. May you strengthen your heart so that you will be blameless and holy in the presence of our God and Father when our Lord Jesus comes with all his holy ones. May your love increase and overflow. And I pray that for us. And so, to, and so today, a first step as we explore what I'm calling Paul's love song. But it's not just a mushy little greeting. It's a word, it's a song that speaks to the very core of our beings. We'll take a second step next Sunday and a third step the following Sunday. But for today, let me invite you to just ponder those words and particularly to reflect upon questions like, so what kind of song would Paul sing over us? And what words of thanksgiving would he offer about us? Let's pray together. Father, we are grateful that first and foremost you have loved us, that you've invited us to be a part of your church, and I pray now, God, that we take seriously the call to love as Christ has loved us, believing that when we love in that way, the world will recognize us as your followers, the world will recognize that indeed Jesus has been sent by God. And so no matter where our love is today, God, help us to ponder, to reflect, to grow. May our love increase and overflow. In the name of Christ we pray. Amen. Let's stand together as we sing.